Welcome to Give Methods a Chance, a podcast where we look at social science methods and practice. In this episode, we are joined by R. Tyson Smith, a visiting assistant professor of sociology at Haverford College. Tyson conducts research in the areas of health, gender, social psychology, criminal justice, and the military. He joins us to discuss the ethnographic approach to research, a method he employed in his recent book, Fighting for Recognition, Identity, Masculinity, and the Act of Violence in Professional Wrestling. Hi Tyson, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. We're here to talk about conducting ethnographic research, and I'd like to use your recent work on the men who make up independent professional wrestling leagues to better understand what the approach actually looks like in practice. So what were your central research questions, or did you have more of a guiding topic when you started out? I would say it was more of a guiding topic, but I would say the general interest I had was about this relationship between violence and masculinity. And I was interested in this appeal of professional wrestling to these young men, and I was quite naive in a lot of respects about what independent wrestling was, independent professional wrestling. And I had this general sets of questions about violence, about masculinity, about class, about contemporary performances of masculinity. And I wanted to explore it. And I found that it, it was sort of guided by this general interest, and then uh, became a, the, the the question became sort of what is appealing, what is motivating about this specific practice, and then from there, sort of what does that say about performances of masculinity for heterosexual identified young, mostly white men in era era of neoliberalism in which dependable jobs are more scarce and women are more part of the workforce than ever and gay life is increasingly normalized and the body is heavily invested in as a site of identity. It, it started with this sort of general interest and then it became about, the question became explaining the appeal and then from there what this appeal and what this motivation has to do with these larger trends and patterns of society and masculinity and class and work and uh, the body in general. So did those questions emerge once you were already conducting the research and it began more with that topic? Yeah, I mean, I have to be honest, and it, I stumbled into the project in that I certainly didn't start grad school thinking, oh, I'm going to study independent professional wrestling. It was this more general interest in gender and violence and things that I had mentioned. And then this became a site and a place with which to study it and understand that better. So Robert Zussman, Bob Zussman has this this article about people and places and talking about the ethnographic method. And he talks about certain projects where people kind of stumble into it. And I would fit into that category in that I was taking an ethnographic methods course and I, there was a, a student who had spoken to me during office hours and we had had this really interesting conversation and then as he was leaving he mentioned something about being a professional wrestling promoter 
And I said, what? And he said, oh, yeah, I do professional wrestling promotions. And check it out. And so I just found that very curious. And I went and started looking around. And there were local shows, local school nearby. So I went down there and checked it out. The funny part was that that guy never appeared in the scene. And I never, I'm not sure I ever saw him again (laughs) at all. But what he did was he kind of introduced me indirectly to this site and this set of uh, practices and this form of theatrical sporting event theater that was a compelling site to investigate these larger questions. Uh, So that one office hours conversation shaped the next, I guess, your, your whole career trajectory. Right. And little did I know, little did he know. I mean, it, it became something where initially it was like, okay, well, I'll, I'll do this for the sake of the, the course, the graduate course I was taking, and, and I'll just do it for the semester. And then at a certain point, I realized that, you know, there was enough sociologically interesting, important things going on here that it could be a larger project and it could be turned into, you know, a, a good dissertation and then a, a good book. Could you talk a little bit more or or just briefly about what your specific methodological design was for this project? And it sounds like it emerged from a class in ethnography, but maybe just a little bit of an overview. Yeah. So I think in in many respects, this, what I did was, was a conventional ethnography in that I immersed myself in a scene and I, I went there, I discovered things, I immersed myself, I, I, uh, ex- you know, I, I explored, I kept going, I went where they went, I interviewed people, I kept going, I was a participant observer in that I was part of the scene and, you know, sort of always around and talking to people and, you know, getting ice or driving people or, or going to bars or going to the gym, etc. So that design, I would say, you know, it, it really kind of fit a lot of uh, other ethnographic approaches in that I immersed myself and then the design was, you know, data collection, data analysis, and then data presentation. So before we continue talking about the the specifics of the methods, would you mind sharing some of your core findings or contributions so we can have that in mind as we as we talk more about your experience in the field? Some of the core findings were that first of all, the more extreme the performance of masculinity, the more tenuous it is. So what I mean is that sort of the more kind of over the top the performance of masculinity, the more staging and collaboration and backstaging that it requires. And I think this goes beyond pro wrestling to several other uh, sites and, and phenomena in that there's, there's a backstaging to these performances of masculinity or normative masculinity that are also this, this kind of front stage idea of strength and toughness and uh, domination and antagonism, etc. And uh, there, you know, with with a closer look, it reveals that it's those those are actually more tenuous and, and sort of performances that require a lot of collusion and collaboration and backstaging. The other 
finding is about the body in terms of how um, the body has come to be taken on more and more value as the sort of locus of identity or self-worth. And at the same time, it's something that's dispensable and something that is subject to all sorts of sort of violence and harm and risk. And so how do young men navigate this and how, how do they make sense of this sort of moment in which the body is taking on new and increased meaning at the same time that its risk and, and harm are quite, quite normalized. So the, one of the, the findings that relates to that is that there's this significant amount of trust and intimacy that occurs during such phenomena in that when you jump off something high or you, you know, say like in wrestling where you are up a ladder and you jump down 10 feet and crash through a table or crash onto an opponent. In fact, there's all sorts of trust and intimacy that's required for that to successfully occur because people actually don't want to get injured and they don't really want to experience pain or injury. So they need this pretty elaborate set of trust and protection for it to occur and for it to succeed. And there's a certain intimacy within that. And that intimacy is almost entirely unstated or, or implicit, I should say. And yet that becomes one of the sort of appealing aspects of the whole practice is that people, you know, literally have your, have your back and people, um, you come to develop a certain trust and appreciation and intimacy and closeness with these other men that is very hard to find in other settings and contexts and aspects of social life. And so I think another finding is that, you know, it, professional wrestling isn't all that different from other groups of men, despite sort of looking strange. So like, like other good ethnographies, I, I try to make the normal weird and the weird normal. So for wrestlers, you know, it's normal to, for example, spray Pam all over their body to have this glistening look. It's normal to jump off ladders and crash through tables. Inversely, it's weird that there's neighborhoods in which there's no sidewalks and people don't think, talk, or to, you know, uh, talk to each other, or, or, you know, driving everywhere, or, or, or these kind of suburban phenomenon that um, I try to highlight aspects of how they end up affecting behaviors. As this project began to develop and you were actually in the field, did you ever consider other methodological approaches or even other variations of the ethnographic approach? Yeah, I mean, I certainly considered participating in the wrestling and in the ring and doing you know, what's been called carnal sociology or, or, or doing the in-ring wrestling itself. And I, I, really, I, I really thought I could do it. I actually still think I could do it. I, I, I see myself as having a theatrical side. I, I, it's not hard for me to be physical and athletic and theatrical. But I recognize the risk to the body, you know, almost immediately, and it really turned me off. And... 
it wasn't something I was comfortable doing to, you know, risk my body in that way. I had already had two knee surgeries. I'd broken my foot several times, cracked ribs, had all broken nose, all these sorts of sports injuries. And I was, I just didn't have an appetite for that anymore. And I, I really saw it as though this was very dangerous stuff, high risk. And I didn't, I didn't want to get in there and take that risk. So that, that actually surprised me because I really thought like, oh, this would be this great way to conduct research as well as have this break from the more heady and, you know, inside type of more banal sociology research. That really brings up the, the question of access. So once you chose a site, how did you go about gaining access to it? And I know you mentioned you considered being a full participant at one point, um, which also raises the question, did people accept you as a researcher when you were hanging out, whether at, uh, I don't know, at a, at a practice or at events themselves? I was quite self-conscious about it, and I put a lot of thought as to how I should do it and who I should speak to and what I should say and the exact words. And, you know, it felt like like a first date where you just really want to get it right and not, you know, and you really like the person, you don't want to say the wrong thing. Um, so I was really kind of tentative. And so what I did is I went to a few shows where there was, you know, lots of public people there. Uh, you know, I could just sort of blend in. Well, uh, the first show actually was kind of small because it was just in this garage. There was really only about 25 spectators. And they all noticed me because I wasn't there before. And they noticed who the fans are and everything. So yeah. I wasn't. So that shows, that shows how insular that community is. Then. Yeah, right. So I was noticed. But I actually was able to just sort of like check it out, leave. And then the next show, there was more people. And I checked it out again being some I started talking to people but I was just kind of circulating and friendly kind of asking people just some questions here and there and I kind of scribbled some things down and but the funny part about that is that this guy walks up to me and he's like hey how you doing I was like uh good (laughs) and he he's like I haven't seen you in a while and I was like yeah I haven't seen you either and he I don't know who he was, but he mistook me for someone that he knew, and he was he was he was he was in the scene. He wasn't wrestling that night, but he was like he had been part of the whole scene. I don't know if he had form, you know been a wrestler before, or he was like the sibling of a wrestler, or he just knew everyone, and he thought he knew me, but I didn't know him, and I was just trying to figure out what to do with this situation because I didn't want to. You know, I was kind of thinking, oh, well, how, how far do I let him go? You know, h- how do I kind of integrate myself into this without being some kind of fraud? And it, we continued talking, and I realized that, like, this was just getting more and more uncomfortable for me. But, you know, it did highlight how, you know, there's a certain way in which I kind of fit in enough by virtue of, you know, I guess just sort of everything from sort of dress to my race to my age to my 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 sex etc that 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 I was able to kind of just be somewhat uh of the same ilk and so what I ended up doing was really figuring out the kind of hierarchy of the group and who was most in charge and who was influential and who was you know kind of popular and who was more of a gatekeeper and who was you know, kind of uh, more difficult, all those things. I sort of mapped it out in my mind, and I was like, all right, I need to speak to him and him. 
and I need to say this and that. And I just sort of, the next time I went and I sort of was like, I sort of gradually got there in that I introduced myself to the right people and told them what I was kind of interested in. And then the time after that, I think I was like, all right, look, I'm, I'm really, you know, thinking about writing a book about this and I'm interested in these, you know, how people do this and how, um, you know, there, there isn't much written about independent wrestling at all. And I'm interested in, in, in uh, um, investigating this and, and, and it really wasn't all that difficult. And, uh, a lot of it was in my mind thinking that, you know, these guys were going to be resistant or they're, they're not going to be interested in speaking with me or they're going to want to keep me out. But it turns out these guys were eager to have someone write a book that about them and, and hear their stories. And, and, uh, I think you can go such a long way just by being curious and a good listener and really showing respect and showing a, a genuine interest as well as a certain humility in the midst of all that. So it, it wasn't that hard to get in, particularly now that I'm studying veterans and there's, there's such a contrast because it's really difficult to find young veterans and to be able to kind of speak with them candidly and to kind of get past some of these initial types of kind of skepticism or resistance. And so with, with this second project working that I'm working on now, I'm able to see how with the wrestlers, it was really easy. <laughs> I, I, I didn't think it would be easy, but it, you know, uh, relatively it, it's, it was pretty easy to get into that scene. And that, that seems to relate to the, even the title of your book, Fighting for Recognition, right. where this, this is a form of recognition, you going and being interested in them in, in some ways, the validation they want, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And I speak a lot about that in the appendix of the book where, you know, I was really a sort of central form of recognition throughout the field work where, you know, people were looking to looking for my validation, looking for validation from me and, and how I responded to things and what, what I had to say about things and what what I thought of their moves or what I thought of their fight and their match. So did you did you encounter any unexpected barriers or challenges once you got past that initial hesitation or fear about about getting access? Uh, or did it? Or was it really a very smooth process once you were in the site? It became smoother and smoother. But uh, I did find that when you're standing around watching so much, uh, as much as I was talking to people and you know, part of the scene as a participant and grabbing things and helping out, you're still more, in my case, more passive than active and. What that meant was there were times where I felt sort of self-conscious about that. And so what made that a lot better was once I started to interview people. Because then people weren't looking at me like, well, who's that dude just staring at us? Or, or who's that guy that, you know, has introduced himself to I see every week, but like, what's his story? And so once I started to interview people, that really got a lot easier because you go and you step outside of the, the setting with them, you go to a cafe or a diner and you get to know them and you spend a couple hours talking and it, it, with, with each interview, I just became more and more part of the scene and more and more part of their camaraderie or family and their, their whole 
you know, um, community. The, I would say that, yes, there, there were definitely some things that went wrong and there were, there were unexpected challenges for sure. And first of all, I, you know, one of the things that went wrong was early on was I had, this was 2004, 2005, I had forwarded some email about some anti-war email um, to, I, I don't know if I did it, I think I did it accidentally to a couple wrestlers and I got this long response from one of the wrestlers who totally disagreed with me and was speaking very uh, brusquely about how much of a fool I was and how I just didn't understand the world, etc. And initially I got really kind of spooked by this because I was like, oh man, here goes my access because this guy was had a lot of status in the group. And it seemed to me like I really screwed up because here I was kind of courting them and I outed myself as this kind of crazy liberal that, you know, can't be trusted. And so I got really concerned about that, but I, I came to realize that actually it was just his way of sort of speaking frankly and being, I think, you know, it, 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 it sort of confrontational and it was okay. I just wasn't so used to it. It was, it was kind of his way of saying like, shut up, asshole, you know, and I didn't quite, you know, initially know what to make of it. I came to kind of understand that he was really saying like, you know, you're crazy, but we can, we can keep fighting about this. And, um, so that, that was a moment where I, I, I really sort of shuddered and, and thought, oh man, I'm going to lose my access to this group because of this political email I sent. The other moment that was, uh, that stands out in this respect was as it certainly as an unexpected challenge was how these guys put themselves at risk and do a lot of harm and do a lot of things that are um, hard to watch. And they're hard to watch because there's a lot of risk and there's a lot of injury. And sometimes there's really serious injury. And it didn't happen in my group, but um, you know, people get paralyzed. People certainly can die. There's risk to the body that's substantial. And But these guys are constantly sort of on the edge playing with the audience reaction to that risk and danger. And one show in particular, they, they, they did this spot, you know, that's what they call uh, a sort of a set of moves. They did this spot where they climbed up this ladder and this wrestler was being thrown down through the mat and there was a trap door that was supposed to fall through and the guy was going to be carried up the ladder and then thrown off the ladder through down to the mat and then the trap door would, would break and he would fall through the entire ring and onto the sort of floor of the whole gymnasium. So if it went correctly, the trap door would have been unlatched and the guy would have hit the mat and then sort of broken on through. But what happened was they threw him and the trap door hadn't been unlatched and um, he didn't go through, and he had just been thrown, you know, almost 10 feet, and landing on his side, and you could really tell that it didn't go well, you know, it's, it's, once you got to know things a little better, it, it just looked off, and I didn't like it, you know, I, I really didn't like it, I was like, ooh, that's, that, you know, that was hard to watch, and yet they carried him back up there and did it again, and it didn't 
break that time either. And I was, at this point, I just was like, you know, the mood of the place changed. There were people crying. His girlfriend is, uh, was, was crying. And it, the, everything sort of had a very uncomfortable feel. There were, there were little kids who were kind of like holding on closer to their parents and kind of had, you know, concerned looks and people weren't cheering. Just everything was like, this isn't entertainment. This isn't, this isn't good. You know, this, this has crossed a certain line. And they carried him back up there again and they threw him down. The trap door collapsed, but he did not come out of that pit for a long, long time. And they, they then are like, all right, we need an ambulance. They, you know, they sort of, there's several people who are standing down, looking down at him. You can't see the wrestler who's underneath the ring. And everything just was like, this, this is way beyond the pale. Like this, this doesn't, this isn't right because we care about these characters. We care about these people. And you're really screwing with us in a, in a profound way that is not, that's not, it's just not what you should do because we care, you know, we care about you. And it, um, and so with people crying and all this, you know, change in mood, I really was concerned. And so I was like, I don't know if this guy, you know, how he's gonna be all right. And so the show, like, ends. Essentially, it it was just one of these moments. It was very challenging because I, I I felt like I lost sort of a lot of respect because I was really concerned that this guy was considerably injured, if not paralyzed or worse. And I go to see him the next day, or go to see the group to figure out what happened because I wasn't able to like track it down. And he's you know the guy who went through the the mat was just like so still just absolutely thrilled that so many people had bought the work, including myself. And I was like, see him the next day, and I'm like, I can't believe, you know, you ended it like that. You really screwed, you know, that that was messed up that you were, and he was, he just continued to kind of be so joyful about how he pulled pulled this off and how so many people bought it. And that's including his, his girlfriend and family were crying, right? <laughs> yes, you mentioned before. yes, his girlfriend was crying. So that, that, was, that was really a strange moment of field work where um, you felt like he's kind of like collectively, it wasn't just him, but this group took it too far and you know, you, you don't really want to keep supporting them if they're going to do these things that are highly dangerous and are, you know, it's unclear how they, how, how they're going to fare. I mean, it turns out that like violent entertainment, we kind of need to know that the pe- the person is all right in the end. One of the challenges that it seems uh, ethnographers in particular face is that you're you're immersed in the scene, so there's a potentially overwhelming amount of stimuli and potential data. So how did you how did you know what counted as data? Since you're you're going to practices, you're going to these shows, you have all these conversations. Like, what did you? How did you manage to narrow that down or choose what you were going to actually look at and, and share in the book or, or analyze? Yeah, it's uh, a really good question. I would say that what count at first, first several months, everything counts as data. You know, it was just like so many field notes, so many uh, observations. And for a while, everything is, is being recorded that you can possibly record. And this means that a ton of things end up on the cutting room floor. So you have all these hundreds of pages of field notes and interview data that 
don't end up in the book or in the, the dissertation. So I would, what you then start to see after, in my case, several months is that there are certain patterns, there are certain things that you've established and you, you, you know are sort of themes that you've documented and have, have a very certain sense of what they are, how they work, and you don't need to necessarily like keep collecting data in, in the same respect. And then there's other things where you just realize that that's interesting and a, a, a certain aspect of what's going on, but it, there isn't a way to include that as well. And in my case, I have some data on the audience and the audience interaction, but I really was more focused on the performers and the guys doing it instead of the audience. When people are first learning about research methodology, one of the ideas that is discussed a lot is generalizability. Was this a concept that you thought about during the research or that guided the project in any way? Yeah. The, 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 I guess the question is generalizable to what? I mean, it's not like it's generalizable to all you know, young white men in their 20s who are working class or lower middle class. So it's certainly not generalizable. But I did strive to be generalizable to the larger scene of independent wrestling. And I think it's held up in that respect. And, you know, when other indie wrestlers read it or when other people who know the scene read it or come across it and they say, yeah, you got that right. It means a lot to me and it speaks to to aspects that are generalizable. So, yeah, I, I don't think you, you know, it is ethnography can do that and I think that you just need to recognize that limitation and not try to claim it. Now there are certain aspects of it, there are certain things that I touch on that are generalizable but, you know, say it's about sort of, you know, the sort of tension between the homoeroticism and the homophobia. That, you know, I think that's generalizable to a lot of different social scenes of young men or just men in general. And so I think those those can be generalized to a lot of different phenomena, but I don't make the case that it is, you know, I don't try and say, though, that this is how it works in all these different things. Another often discussed idea when people are taking a research methodology course is the idea of positionality. And your project seems like a, a really powerful case study to talk about this because you acknowledge that in some ways you're drawn to the allures of the site, you get, you get what the participants are doing, but then there's also some clear tensions where you feel a disconnect or you, know, you, you talked about how they, they went too far in that one story that you told. So how did you navigate your status in the site and your relationship to the people that you were researching? Yeah, I, I think this is really important and it's in the news a lot these days. When I first wrote my appendix, someone had read it and they were like, geez, you know, I mean, like, are you also going to tell us boxers or briefs? And that was, you know, the joke was that I had sort of like said so much about what I was doing and where I was coming from and who I was and how I did this project and what I collected and that I was saying too much. And I ended up cutting it back. But my style all along, both in my appendix and just throughout the research, was, was really, you know, very confessional. And um, I just 
made a point to be frank and personal and, and just speaking to how I, I dealt with all the kind of aspects of being in the scene from the kind of things I didn't like to the feelings of isolation or alienation to how I developed the rapport and how I uh, was sometimes bored or sometimes scared or sometimes really excited or sometimes a dupe or sometimes a mark or uh, or sometimes just tired or sometimes it was very confessional in that sense and I really you know made a point to say a lot about sort of who I was and where I was coming from so I feel like my appendix was very honest and you know as I said I think some reviewers even thought it was maybe too honest but I feel like there's a certain trap going on now or maybe all along in that if you're really honest it also leaves you more vulnerable to greater criticism and so we're looking for these comments and analysis of your positionality but if you the more you put out there the more vulnerable you are it's a challenging balancing act in which you must be as honest as you can but recognizing that the more you put out there, the more critics have to kind of latch onto as the possible shortcoming of your uh, approach. You know, that's a, that's a really fascinating and enlightening answer um, because I can see how there, yeah, there's this pressure to present who you are and how it affects your research, but there's almost an, the ideal way to present that. And if you are truly honest, then you deviate from that I- ideal. Is that is that kind of is that right? Yeah, I think that's right, and I think that. Anything you put out there about yourself can be interpreted in such a way that it can kind of be uh, mis misinterpreted or misread. And so I, I I'd like to see more honest, more lengthy appendix and reflections on the positionality of the researcher. But I recognize that in doing that, we're we're kind of leaving ourselves more exposed. I think you know if you look at a lot of ethnographies that are more well-known, the, the there is a tendency of certain bigger-name people to not say that much about themselves. This is a little bit of a shift from the last question, but I'm wondering, reflecting back on the project, are there particular limitations to this methodological approach that were revealed uh, through the use of it? Yeah, I mean, I think with ethnography, you really do need good social skills, and I don't think you're going to get as good a data if you're not able to build rapport and really develop trust with your subjects. And I mean, I think that's one limitation of this methodological approach is that some people aren't cut out for ethnography. And I think whether they're, you know, just extremely shy or they're, they're not so inherently interested in people's experiences or they're not so good at listening closely, that's a limitation. I mean, I got to say, you know, it's always been fascinating to me how some people who do ethnography, you, you meet them at a conference and they're just not very friendly and they're difficult people. And it's not just you, they're known for being uh, difficult and impersonal and, and sort of aggressive or mean or you know unfriendly. And yet they did an ethnography. And I've always been curious about that and how that works in that how is it that you can go into a field site and do good field work? Because you need to be 
friendly and interested in people and and accessible and trusting and and then you're at the conference or wherever it is it doesn't have to be a conference you're you're none of those things are there are there any particular practical details or tricks of the trade that you'd want to share with students who are thinking about conducting an ethnographic project similar to this one yeah i think you got to just keep going you got to you got to go where they go you got to just stay interested and keep after it and immerse yourself and and keep going i mean i can't repeat that enough it's it's also really important to have this certain humility in in conducting the work and um, i think that you you can get involved and you can be participating in various ways you don't have to be necessarily tasting it or smelling it or hitting the face but you can you know you can participate in a whole number of ways and you can get in there and you can keep going in that you you go to the various parts of you know the scene that that aren't immediately obvious you sort of they invite you somewhere you go one of the sort of things that I did was these guys would go to some bars and some places that I would never go on my own, but you, you keep going, right? I mean, you, you don't sort of, you just go to all those parts of, of the social scene and the social world that are what, that they're in. But you do it, you know, with humility and you, and, and you do it as honestly as you can, because the more they know who you are and what, you know, you're about, the better. It's okay to sort of not like certain things. People are always going to be able to read you. And so if you're if, if you're sort of not comfortable with something, better to sort of explain why or be out about it and own it and then try and kind of uh, hide it or try and obscure that. And I guess, you know, in a way, this, this sort of allows me to say something about, I, in my appendix, I sort of make this point that I always, all the way through, sort of always felt like I, I was sort of a, ultimately more on the outside of things. And I think I say this because I always had a problem with some ethnographers who speak about their work as though they are able to transcend the gap between these social locations. So Lucia Trimber and I, she's an ethnographer, you know, we called it the ethnographic cowboy in that there, there's certain people that sort of write about their setting, write about their study as though they, they transcend the gap between these social locations and they have some belief in themselves as unique in their ability uh, to, to transcend this, this difference. And I, I mean, I find that there, there was a certain, there was a certain gap between who I was and and who a lot of these guys were that I just was very conscious of, and I didn't try to hide that. And so, you know, whether it was the educational difference or the fact that I just I, I found meaning in other things or found motivations in other things, and I wasn't seeking recognition in the same ways, I, I was always kind of, that was in the forefront of my mind, and I didn't try to mask that and, and act as though that, that wasn't 
a type of difference, and, and, and I was very sort of honest about how that difference may have impacted the research overall. As a way of concluding, I was hoping you could reflect back on your project and imagine you're standing in front of a group of undergrads who had never heard of this approach before, um, and you're talking about your research, but what would you tell them are the main advantages or selling points of going with the ethnographic research method over other options they might have? Ethnography allows you to interrogate social processes better than other methods. So you're able to see what people are actually doing, and then you're able to see what they say about what they're doing. And you're able to kind of analyze if there's any differences between what they say and what they do. And you're able to really identify a social process, oftentimes uh, something that you could never get from a type of survey or something more quantitative. And you're, you're, you're there, and you're able to actually sort of see what people do instead of what people say they do. And some of the most interesting things are when people are doing things different from what they say and trying to make sense of that and trying to explain what that's about where they say one thing yet do another and you're able to intervene on that and explain that and make sense of it and provide an analysis of why that might be. So social processes and the other thing is you know subjectivity. You're, you're able to speak to what the individual's personal background and experience and circumstances are that uh, you can get really only with good, rich, qualitative, ethnographic detail and description and being there. Um, I think one, one interesting thing that about sort of big quantitative studies versus smaller uh, ethnographic studies um, is that in sociology a lot of the time you know we we know about forms of inequality and forms of marginalization and forms of uh, oppression and a lot of the times we're under you know a lot of the times we we are seeing we come to understand that through quantitative studies that show these structural forces and how they shape everything from, you know, neighborhoods to schooling to crime, etc. And so we have a good sense of these inequities and how that those structures shape lives. But then with ethnography, we often see, you know, people fighting back in the midst of those inequalities or in the midst of those structural constraints. And so it's it's an interesting contrast in that you with with the ethnography you can see this self-will, you can see this resistance and you can see these forms of sabotage or fighting back against these more structural realities. So so both are occurring. Those are kind of three in particular strengths of this methodological approach. Well, that's great. Thank you for stopping by and talking to us today. Yeah, thanks so much for speaking with me. Appreciate it. On behalf of me, Sarah Loggison, and my co-producer, Kyle Green, thank you so much for listening. And remember, 
Please give Methods a chance. Thank you.